everybody, and welcome to a very festive and special episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton, and we're coming today to give you our special Thanksgiving episode. And uh, Ken has prepared, I think, a poem or a soliloquy, or maybe we're going to reenact Charlie Brown, but you're going to love it. And hopefully you're listening to this on the way to or from some wonderful holiday gatherings. Ken, I know you're at a, a holiday place. I'm at a holiday place getting ready to partake in Thanksgiving. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be uh, back together again. It is. It is. We've had a little bit of a break. It's good to be finishing the year strong. So you wanted to talk about Thanksgiving. We talked about Halloween. Uh, Thanksgiving, maybe a little bit lighter of a conversation. Uh, What do we got today? Well, I want to talk a little bit about the origins of Thanksgiving and um, how we should think about Thanksgiving in our time right now, because as everybody who's alive and breathing is aware, it seems as though every single thing under the sun is being contested, including Thanksgiving. And uh, it's conceivable that um, it will be struck from the public record at some point, although uh, it won't happen this year, I don't think. And, you know, there's a a saying that um, he who controls history controls the future, which is a more simplified way of saying that those who control the narrative can shape the future according to their own ideals. Um, I'm not looking to control anything, but I do think uh, there are those who do want to control things. And I think that with that in mind, a lot of those people have undertaken to rewrite the narrative, to rewrite the history of Thanksgiving. And I think we need to set the record straight and actually talk about the, you know, the reason that Thanksgiving is a worthy holiday to be celebrating. And so that's kind of what I want to do today. I love it. I love it. I think, uh, I mean, I was just talking to you. I had, I had a conversation today with someone who seemed to have misconstrued opinions on this uh, wonderful uh, day of Turkey and fun and family and Thanksgiving. So yeah, what do we got? Let's, let's set the record straight. Yeah, let's, let's do that. So um, let's begin with the pilgrims. Uh, they came, as I think everybody is aware, on the Mayflower, and they landed at what is known as Plymouth Rock uh, in very close to the center of Plymouth, Massachusetts today. Um, I've been there. I've seen the rock. It actually is cracked now because... Um, can't remember when it was, but a, a while back, they were trying to move the rock and uh, they didn't brace it well. And the, the crane, you know, started to lift it and it cracked. And so they decided at that point, they better just put it right back down. So Plymouth Rock today is cracked, uh, but the pilgrims landed in 1620. And, you know, they had sailed from what is today Holland and they, uh, they had left late in the year. They'd gone in September and made the Atlantic crossing. And this was actually not probably the best decision they could have made from an operational tactical standpoint, because by uh, late September, the North Atlantic is already becoming fairly rough. And uh, certainly into October, uh, now things are getting downright stormy. And the Mayflower was not a large ship. I mean, I guess it was suitable for crossing an ocean because it did. But one of the things that happened while they were crossing, the waves were so heavy, the wind was so strong, the main mast of the ship physically cracked. And if you read the, uh, the journals, the, you know, the recordings of the ship's master and of the pilgrims themselves, William Bradford being the chief among them, he was the kind of leader of the... Uh, of the, of the colony in uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts. Uh, William Bradford said that because of the crack in the mast, they had to hold it steady with a great iron screw. 
And so, you know, they, I don't know where they got this screw. Maybe they were carrying it against the possibility that the mask might crack, but they, you know, they, they screwed it down. And so it was 102 people who were crossing, but you know, what is nearly always left out of the narrative these days, even though it was fairly well understood when I was a kid, is that these pilgrims who came, they were English who were hiding in Holland because of the persecution that was going on against those who did not belong to the state church. And when we say the state church, I mean the church that was run by the government of England, which means the Anglican church. So these were free church people. Uh, they were non-Anglicans and they had fled to Holland because the civil war that was underway was, um, well, violent violent and deadly to them and so they were they'd been given um you know what amounts to a form of shelter uh in holland but ultimately they had heard that you know there was land in the in the new world and they decided to sail away with the idea of founding a new society built entirely on christian principles and the, the only other uh, record we have of an English settlement in the New World during that era of time was the Jamestown settlement of 1607. So if you're doing the math in your head, these pilgrims came, they landed in November of 1620. Um, the Jamestown settlement had been founded 13 years sooner, earlier in Jamestown, Virginia, and when the English came to resupply Jamestown, and it was named after, of course, King James, thus the name Jamestown. Uh, when they came to resupply that settlement, all the people had vanished. They don't, they, we don't know to this day what became of Jamestown. Uh, they could have been killed in an Indian raid. Uh, they may have died of disease. They may have wandered away from the fort, the fortress. Fort is just a shortened form of fortress. Uh, that they had built to secure themselves inside of it, uh, perhaps looking for food or something. And uh, maybe they didn't survive that expedition or they got lost and never made it back. We just don't know what happened in Jamestown. So it was kind of, kind of a failed uh, attempt at establishing an English colony in the new world. Um, those who are students of history will be aware that there had been some other settlements in the new world. Uh, one, of course, was a Viking settlement in Greenland. And we know that that goes back, they used to say to the year 1000, but I read something this year that said they now think the early Viking settlements were as early as the 800s. But that's a, that's a very different era of time. And we're talking hundreds of years uh, apart from the time that we're discussing right now. And the uh, Spanish had, had uh, a settlement in St. Augustine, Florida, named after St. Augustine. By the way, note on that, um, all of these cities and towns that have any kind of a Christian name, St. Augustine, uh, Santa Monica, California, San Antonio, Texas, where I'm broadcasting from, uh, we could go right on down the list. I would look in the next decade or less for there to be a, a big, big move to rename all of these cities so that their Christian names are strict, uh, stricken from the record. Um, I hope I'm not prophesying. I hope I'm just being a little bit nervous, but I think there's a big move underway to rewrite all of the history because all of these, many of these cities, they have uh, Christian names reflecting the Christian faith of these early uh, settlers. Uh, Corpus Christi, Texas is another one. That is literally in Latin, the body of Christ, uh, Texas. So there, there are many such places in America uh, and they're sprinkled around, of course, near the coasts. Um, anyway, so back to the pilgrims. In 1620, they land. It's November. And these are religious refugees. That's what they are. And they are seeking to build a society that's founded on the ideals of Christianity. And they very much did have in mind that they would found a city on a hill that would be a light to the nations. And if anybody doubts this, all you need to do is go to Plymouth, Massachusetts, and if you will walk up the hill from the waterfront where Plymouth Rock is located on the main street that goes up the hill, um, I can't remember how many blocks it is, but I want to say three 
from memory. Uh, there's an old wooden church that was built by hand in that era. And when you walk into the front doors of the church in the narthex, it is carved into the wooden walls that they came to found a city on a hill, um, a place that would be a light to the nations, a place where the ideals and values of Christianity uh, could be fully embodied. And notwithstanding that high ideal and clearly trying to dedicate all they were doing to um, our father, notwithstanding that, about half of the pilgrims died the first winter. They stayed on board the Mayflower, lived off the supplies they had on the boat. Uh, but winter came, and especially in an era when there was no global warming, uh, winter was hard on them. Uh, there was various disease and whatnot. And by the way, if you go just adjacent to the church I just mentioned, there's a, there's a cemetery there that I've been through. I have a lot of pictures I've taken there. And uh, <clears throat> there are a number of graves there uh, of people who were on the Mayflower, attesting to the fact that they that the, the writings of William Bradford, the leader of the of the colony, are accurate. And I think that's important to note because um, a lot of people want to call into question William Bradford. They view him as some sort of a conquistador, which he definitely was not. Um, the pilgrims would have, of course, had some amount of weapons, but they did not come in some sort of a conquest move. I think the Spaniards in Latin America, there I think you could make a case that they came seeking gold and, and whatnot, but, but the pilgrims did not come with that as their intention. They came to establish a religious, godly society that would be a light to the nations and a model to all, and they engraved this in the walls of the church they built, and th those roughly half that died that first winter of 1620 into 1621, um, those people came um, really with no reason other than to establish this society. So I'll pause there, Grant, if you want to ask any questions about that. No, I mean, I think that makes sense. And in some, some sense, they were, you know, somewhat religious refugees. Uh, That's right. Seeking freedom and asylum uh, in, in what they would have thought would be the promised land, right? That's right. So, you know, when I was... Uh, when I was last at Plymouth Rock visiting, I went in the summer and there was a, a person from the National Park Service there giving an interpretive tour. And, uh, you know, he had a, a reasonable crowd gathered around him and he launched into this thing that was its own form of the revisionist history that we're all hearing everywhere. Um, I distinctly recall him saying that the pilgrims came and they stole all of the Indians food and all of the Indians land. Uh, I think he used the term Native American. And for those who are offended that I said Indians, please forgive me. I grew up in a time where that term was widely used. Um, they were generally in that period known as Indians because the people thought they had found the West Indies. That was what Christopher Columbus thought in 1492. And so he called them Indians, believing them to be inhabitants of the West Indies. Well, that actually wasn't quite right. Um, but the Latin, but the name stuck, and now we call them Native Americans, people who were here first, uh, First Nations peoples. We have various names. I'm fine with all of that. Um, if I slip, please forgive me in advance. I'm not meaning to be offensive, and I'm trying hard not to be offensive, but uh, I do need to recognize that the language has changed in our time. So... Uh, so anyway, these, uh, these, these pilgrims were, they were in a hard way because of the winter. And so they ran out of food. And um, the story of Thanksgiving is actually uh, a rather interesting one because they made contact with um, a Native American who lived in the area. And there were actually uh, three tribes in that general area of, of uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts. One of them is called the Abenaki, if I'm saying the name correctly, I believe it is correct. Uh, A-B-E-N-A-K-I, the Abenaki, the Pawtuxet, uh, P-A-W-T-U-X-E-T. Again, P-A-W-T-U-X-E-T and the Wampanoag tribe, uh, W-A-M, P-A-N-O-A-G. 
G. Uh, that name, by the way, for that third tribe is the root of where we get the term wampum, which had to do with trading back and forth between the settlers and the Native Americans, whether it was for food or beads or you know whatever it might be. So all three of these were in uh, the general area. And there was one man from the Pawtuxet tribe and his shortened name was Squanto. He had a longer uh, name, but he had at one time been uh, kidnapped by an English ship captain. And so, you know, people can say, well, there you see it, the, the white settlers came to enslave these people. Well, I mean, I, maybe that was what the English had in mind. Uh, certainly there was plenty of history in English society leading up to this that would uh, be consistent with that. But again, talking about the pilgrims, they did not come with that intention. So this man, Squanto, he'd been kidnapped by this English ship captain. As a result of that, he had learned to speak English. And in fact, both Squanto and the pilgrims believed that it was providence, meaning the guiding hand of God, that had allowed him to be kidnapped in such a way in order that he could speak English, such that when these English settlers uh, refugees who had left Holland. So they'd left England, gone to Holland, left Holland, come to Plymouth, such that when they landed, he could speak their language. And so he, uh, he showed them how to cultivate native crops. He showed them the rich bounty of the sea that was available in uh, the Plymouth Harbor, uh, where they could get uh, oysters and lobsters and clams and um, in William Bradford's journal, he goes on at great length about the great bounty that the Lord had provided to them. Squanto pointed out that there was an area uh, not far from where the, the uh, pilgrims had come and anchored their ship that had been depopulated due to disease. Now, we don't know what the source of that disease was. Again, those who want to rewrite history and make it you know, contrary to the English and the whites and everything else, they say that they deliberately planted smallpox and engaged in an early form of biological warfare. We don't actually have evidence that that's what happened. It could have been smallpox, it could have been something else, but whatever it was that caused these people to die out, the land there was now depopulated. It was literally just vacant and empty. And so Squato showed it to them and he said, why don't you take this and build it here? And so it was a suggestion, we could say a gift, except I don't know if he actually had the, uh, you know, the right to, to give it away. Uh, but anyway, uh, so he showed them this area and then he taught the pilgrims how to catch eel, how to grow corn. He served as an interpreter for them uh, until he ultimately did die of disease about a year later. And so the Wampanoag leader, um, his name was, uh, must. If I, if I say it right, uh, Masaswa, he also gave food to the colonists during the first winter when the supplies they hadn't brought with them from England proved insufficient. And so what we really see here is the generosity, the kindness, if you will, the mercy of the Native Americans upon these uh, English refugees from their own country who were being persecuted by their own government uh, because of their religious beliefs. And so uh, Masaswa had hoped to establish an alliance uh, between his tribe, the Wampanoag, uh, because they had been weakened by plague and that plague had you know, taken a toll on the Patuxent. And so there was a, there was a concern of you know, what might happen. You know, they, were, they were diminished, they couldn't really hold their own. And so they were, they were looking to establish a kind of an entente between the two and the pilgrims were more than willing to do this. Now, later uh, settlers coming from England, uh, I think it's safe to say they may not have had quite the, the pacifist sentiments that the pilgrims had, but the pilgrims did not come to rape and pillage. And I think it's very important that we establish that clearly. And that's why I'm taking the trouble to name names, talk about the history that unfolded, Etc. Well, anyway, by 1621 in the fall, uh, they determined that they were going to have a feast in thanksgiving to God. 
And we don't know exactly when it occurs, but according to the, um, the journals of James Baker and the, uh, and the work of the Plymouth Plantation Research Institute, there was an event that occurred between September 21, which would have been the autumn uh, equinox, the autumnal equinox, and November the 11th, 1621, so this is exactly 400 years ago and a few days as we make this recording because you know we're in late November now. <clears throat> um, and most, most people think it probably happened around the Feast of Michaelmas, which would be the Feast of St. Michael. And that would have been September the 29th. That's the most commonly accepted date of when the first Thanksgiving was held. And they held a three day feast. And so the, um, the, this goes on and says, the 17th century accounts do not identify this per se as a Thanksgiving ob uh, observance, but rather that it followed the harvest and it included 50 people who had been on the Mayflower, all who remained of the 102 who had originally sailed and 90 Native Americans. So um, the feast was cooked by four adult pilgrim women who survived their first winter in the new world and their names were Eleanor Billington, Elizabeth Hopkins, Mary Brewster, and Susanna White. You know, this is just kind of a side note, but it's interesting. When I was in college, I knew direct descendants of all four of these women who were classmates of mine or plus or minus one year of me. And so, you know, we have this thing called Daughters of the American Revolution. We also have people who are descendants of the Mayflower Pilgrims. And so these four um, cooked the meal and according to accounts by the Wampanoag descendants, uh, the harvest was originally set up for the pilgrims alone, uh, but the surviving natives, they decided to, uh, upon hearing the celebratory gunfire, so they were shooting guns in the air to celebrate and, and you know, honor the Lord. Uh, you know, the scripture talks about banging gongs and clanging cymbals and everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Well, this was their version of that. And so they were afraid that, that maybe that a war was coming to them. They were not strangers to gunfire because of you know, previous incursions by British warships and other warships too, not just the British. And so they arrived to check out what was going on. They saw the feast and watch this. All of these Native Americans were warmly welcomed to the celebration. And so then they decided to contribute their own foods to the meal. And so these separatists, these Puritans, actually had a peaceful celebration, and it was, it was mixed, actually, roughly two to one in terms of numbers of Native Americans vis-a-vis -vis those who were the, uh, the pilgrim participants. You want to ask any questions, Grant? Well, and just to reiterate, I mean, if any of y'all want to come down and celebrate with us here in Tennessee, we often will fire guns in the air uh, to celebrate things all the time. You know, that's just something we love. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think the point you're driving at here, Ken, is that uh, we're not trying to, to say that injustices weren't done to the Native Americans uh, by settlers. We're not trying to, to do any of that. We're trying to say the origin of this holiday is, in fact, a pleasant one. And, That's right. And I'm trying to reclaim the Christian origins of it, right. just as we did a couple of weeks ago with thank, uh, Thanksgiving, with Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's important because it's all sort of convoluted in our minds. And it, it's been many, many years since I've sat through high school American history. And so it can all kind of be uh, some sort of amalgamation of all of the atrocities and trail of tears and everything that happened, which is real. Uh, but in this particular instances, this was, you know, a group of religious refugees celebrating with uh, native people um, for provision from from God, essentially, is what what we're celebrating here um, today. Is that right? Or tomorrow? That's correct. It's exactly correct. So let's go on with this just a little bit. Now, I'm going to read a short passage out of William Bradford's book of Plymouth Plantation. And he says this, and this is direct quotation, uh, they began now to gather in the small harvest they had and to fit up their houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength and had all things in good plenty. 
Now, this is obviously an older style of writing, but I think we understand that they were well provisioned. They'd had a good year by 1621 or late 1621. For as some were thus employed in affairs abroad, others were exercised in fishing about cod and bass and other fish of which they took good store of which every family had their portion. All the summer there was no want and now began to come in store of fowl as winter approached. Now this word fowl is an old fashioned way of saying ducks and geese. So these are waterfowl that we still use the term that way. And it's spelled F-O-W-L, not O-U-L. That O-U-L means bad or you know bad smelling, something like that. So these are waterfowl as winter approach because they were migrating, right? They're coming down out of what is today Canada. Uh, the Hudson Bay is really where most of that originates. Uh, as winter approached, of which this place did abound when they can be used, but afterward deceased by degrees, or excuse me, decreased by degrees, not deceased, but decreased. So the place abounded with waterfowl as they were migrating south. And then as the winter gets you know, further progressed, um, the birds start to leave and they continue on down what is today called the Atlantic Flyway. And they ultimately make their way all the way down to Georgia and Florida and places like that. I mean, they didn't have any knowledge of any of that at that time, but, but that's what they're observing and describing. And besides waterfowl, there was a great store of wild turkeys of which they took many, besides venison, et cetera. Besides, they had about a peck of, uh, a peck of meal a week to a person, or now since harvest, Indian corn to the proportion. So what he's saying is everybody had a, a peck basket a week of meal. So this would be kind of the, the precursor of modern wheat or oats or barley or, you know, whatever you want to talk about. And a peck basket, if you can see my hands, is about this big around and about so deep. A bushel basket's more like this size. Um, so everybody had about a peck of grain a week. And it says that um, there was also Indian corn. Well, they called it Indian corn because, again, they called them Indians and the locals, uh, today we would call them Native Americans, had taught them how to grow that corn so that they would not only have meal, not only have fish, not only have shellfish, not only have waterfowl in season, but that they would have corn. And from that, they could make cornmeal, uh, cornbread. They could, of course, eat the corn as it was. And so it goes on and he says, which made many afterwards right so largely of their plenty here to their friends in England, which were not feigned, but true reports. Now feigned again is an old fashioned term spelled F-E-I-G-N-E-D. So meaning these weren't lies, these were true reports of the bounty. And of course, hearing some of this is what caused others to get on ships. And suddenly you start getting a migration to the new world. And so the settlements begin to grow such that by the mid 1600s, um, there's a reasonable population of English settlers. And now we're starting to get real conflicts with some of these local tribes because they're being pushed out of their native grounds. I'm aware of the problems that creates. I really don't want to address that today. I'm just trying to recover the idea that Thanksgiving is not something we need to throw aside. And I want to recover the idea that uh, Thanksgiving is in fact, um, it has a peaceful and I would say appropriate foundation. Now here's another account from Edward Winslow and he wrote um, in Mort's relation. He says, our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling so that we might after a special manner rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our labor. So again, translating this into more modern English, the leader of the colony picked four men and he sent them out with their guns to shoot wildfowl, ducks and geese, uh, so that they would have you know, plenty of birds laid up in store, not only for this feast, but for the winter that was coming. They four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help beside served the company almost a week. So this means that they needed some help to pull this off probably from the Native Americans, maybe from a few people that were part of the Mayflower surviving band. But basically in one day, these four men 
killed as many birds as was necessary to feed everybody for a week. So, you know, let's just think about how much food that might be. We've got 50 surviving pilgrims seven days in a week. So that's 350, uh, you know, meals that need to be readied in a week. So these four people in one day killed enough to feed 350 meals. Maybe they didn't eat meat at every meal. They might've skipped it, say at breakfast. Um, and maybe they didn't eat as big a meals as we do, but it, it sort of points at the fact that probably these four men killed something in the neighborhood of 250 to 350 ducks and geese in one single day. And of course they didn't just do it for one single day, but this is giving a sense of the yield that they were getting out of the, the bounty of the land. Uh, then he goes on, he says, at which time amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us and among the rest, their, greeting, their greatest king, Manaswa, or Masaswa, sorry, I said it wrong, with some 90 men whom for three days we entertained and feasted and they went out and killed five deer, which we brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. Now, I think it's really interesting as we read this account, there's no mention of a slaughter, which in those days, nobody hesitated to report. Uh, you know, certainly Cortez, when he marched into Mexico City, uh, which at the time was known as Teotihuacan, made, made no bones about the fact of what he did to the native residents there. And so, you know, this idea that, well, because they had guns, they were violent, or necessarily they had to have slaughtered the locals. Uh, this just doesn't bear up under scrutiny. This is just, uh, well, urban legend that has been allowed to propagate. And so the pilgrims held a true Thanksgiving felt celebration again in 1623, um, following a fast and then a 14-day rainstorm, which resulted in a larger harvest. So now, they, now they're really bringing it in. And so that particular Thanksgiving was made in, actually in late summer on Wednesday, the 30th of July in 1623, a day before the arrival of a supply ship with more colonists. So what's happening? Well, the English are coming because they've heard about the bounty of the land and the abundance of the new world. And, you know, all of this just reminds me, and I, I hate to sound like the, you know, true blue patriot here, or maybe not, but, um, you know, when, when I was a kid, we used to sing a song, America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. And the song begins, oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountains, majesty above the fruited plain, America, America, God shed his grace on thee. Well, this is kind of what we're seeing in these journals of these two leading figures of the Plymouth colony. And so this, this particular one of 1623 was held before the fall harvest um, in July, late July. And so in the opinion of the writer, uh, this 1623 Thanksgiving was significant because uh, the order to recognize the event came from civil authority, Governor Bradford, and not from the church making it likely the first civil recognition of Thanksgiving in the history of the new world. Now, I wanna say one other thing here, and that is that William Bradford, um, even though, I mean, he was the civil governor, but let's be clear, he was a religious man. I mean, he was a Christian pilgrim who left Holland after fleeing England. So while he had a secular role um, you know, his, his beliefs would have been part of what informed everything he did. And it's interesting in his writings, he said that he actually had a particular Jewish custom in mind. Namely, he was thinking about the Feast of Sukkot, which always happens late in the year on the Jewish calendar. It's, it's the Festival of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, where they, you know, they make these booths and they or tabernacles and they 
you know, have a big feast. They bring in the harvest and they, they celebrate in this way. And so uh, they based much of what they did on the 107th Psalm. And so I'm going to read from that as part of how we commemorate Thanksgiving this year. And it reads this way, starting in verse one, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Well, I suppose they would be saying this, that they had survived the transatlantic crossing. They'd made it through the first winter, those who survived. Um, they were you know, found by Squanto. They had learned to grow food. They'd learned to live off the bounty of the land in the form of meat from venison, uh, fish of the sea, shellfish, uh, wildfowl. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Well, they'd seen trouble. They'd lost half of their number. And gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They had a sense that, you know, they'd come from far away over the sea, in this case from the east. And yet here they were, they were gathered together in what they called Plymouth Colony. Some wandered in desert ways, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. And so here's that language of the city on a hill that's engraved in the narthex of that church just up the hill from Plymouth Rock. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of mankind. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Well, it goes on, but... Anyway, Bradford was trying to draw on the, uh, the 107th Psalm in some of what they did. And so according to historian James Baker, uh, by the way, I also went to college with uh, one of his children. Uh, he debates whether uh, all of this sort of theory about Thanksgiving and the supposed racist implications of it, whether this might actually just be what he himself termed a tempest in a teapot. And so um, Baker says that the American holiday's true origin was the New England Calvinist Thanksgiving, never coupled with a Sabbath meeting. The Puritan observances were special days of feasting set aside during the week for Thanksgiving and praise in response to God's providence. Now, Thanksgiving didn't actually become a uh, national holiday in the United States until 1863. So that puts us about 140 years, 142, uh, 140 years after, excuse me, 240 years after the one that we've just been describing. And it came about really as, as a Thanksgiving for the fact that the Lord had sustained our country uh, through the Civil War. But there were various Thanksgiving celebrations that were held intermittently during the intervening years between 1621 and 1863. Uh, George Washington famously called for a Thanksgiving for the survival of the Continental uh, Army and the ending of the, uh, of the American Revolution. Now, there are some other linkages that go on uh, with the Jewish tradition, I was reading from the 107th Psalm, I said that they were trying to resemble Shavuot. Um, so there have been some other things that were involved with it. But when it finally became a national holiday in, uh, in 1863, originally it was always held on the last uh, Thursday of November. And then during the Great Depression in 1939, this is during the administration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The date actually got moved forward because that year, uh, the 30th of November was falling on a Thursday. It's the last day of the month. And even then, uh, merchants were concerned about getting enough sales during the Christmas shopping season. And they determined that uh, in those days, you couldn't actually open the Christmas sales or start decorating stores, things like that, until after Thanksgiving was properly and formally done. Mm. And so uh, recognizing that from November 30 to December 25 would only give us a 25-day Christmas shopping season, there was actually a Jewish businessman who proposed that it move forward a week 
And so by statute now, it always became the fourth Thursday of November, such that if there were a month, as happened in 1939, if there were a month of November in which there were five weeks, we wouldn't have Thanksgiving fall on the 30th of the month and compromise the Christmas shopping season. Now, obviously, in our time, that's changed completely. I mean, the Christmas ornaments go out at Halloween. But, um, but in those years, which actually wasn't that long ago, it was about 90 years ago, um, you know, that's the way they did it. And so that's how we happen to have our, our Thanksgiving now fall on the fourth Thursday of November. I love it. Well, and I think this gives people some perspective as they're coming into potentially volatile situations with so many different things that can go awry with family and friends at Thanksgiving. This would be a good thing to talk about, um, opposed to other things that might be a bit more divisive that we can sort of get back to the origin story of this holiday. So um, that's right. I think it's valuable. And uh, I learned something, as I typically do uh, with you, Ken, and uh, several different things. So I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to give us a brief uh, history. Let me ask you this question before we go. Yeah, well, actually, I want to, before, to, to close, I actually want to read a Thanksgiving proclamation from 1782, because I want everybody to hear what America used to sound like in its public discourse as a Christian, or at least a nation that believed itself to be living according to the statutes of God. I'm not saying they did it perfectly, but they certainly believe that of themselves, um, because I think it'll show you the level of drift that we've had in the ensuing years. Well, that, that's kind of what I wanted to get to before you read that. Okay. Why is this important for the people that are listening to this right now? Yeah, it's important because number one, it is appropriate at all times and all places for us to give thanks to God. The scripture commands us that we should give thanks in all circumstances. And this, by the way, is not just where we sit quietly in our hearts saying, oh, I'm grateful. You know, this word gratefulness or gratitude has become the sort of new agey 21st century version of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is actually intended to be corporate. It is intended to be audible. And it is intended to be Godward directed, not just some vague sense of thankfulness or gratitude, but in fact, it connects us to our creator and it allows us to give thanks for his signal blessings that he bestows upon us. And in fact, when we are thankful, it, it has many side benefits. Number one, it can open the gates of blessing for more. The scripture says in Psalm 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving. And so that's the way we come into the presence of God. And I dare say that for a lot of us, one of the reasons sometimes the pipe is, is uh, clogged is because we're not thankful enough as a people. And I'm especially now talking to Christians, but I think it's still appropriate, even for non-believers who don't, maybe they're maybe not totally signed up to this, but but they, they understand uh, something of, you know, that there's this being called God and they're kind of questioning it. They may be God seekers or God fearers. It's appropriate for them to be doing it as well. Um, but the other thing that can happen is um, there's been a lot of research done that shows that people's mental health, things like anxiety and fear and depression is measurably better in those who are consciously and intentionally thankful. And so it's not only appropriate in terms of how we relate to God, but if you just want to be very narrow about, you know, what's in it for me, there's a lot in it for us individually, if we will give appropriate thanks to the Lord. I love it. Thanksgiving, not just a day to eat a lot of food, yep. maybe a day to get mentally healthy. That's I right. And by the way, I think the reason that uh, Thanksgiving falls on Thursday is it actually does allow, consistent with what the original pilgrims did, for three days of feasting, if we can take it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I started feasting a couple weeks ago, so this is great. It's great for me. All right. So I want to read this now. This is the proclamation that was published in the Independent Gazetteer, also known as the Chronicle of Freedom, 
Date is November 5, 1782. And this was in advance of the Thanksgiving that was observed on November the 28th, 1782. Now, again, we know that the first one was held 1621. We know it didn't become a national holiday until 1863. Um, so we're, you know, we're not quite a hundred years ahead of its official establishment as a holiday, but nevertheless, this is what it says. By the United States in Congress assembled a proclamation. Now that means Congress agreed to this. It's a congressional resolution. It being the indispensable, uh, indispensable duty of all nations, not only to offer up their supplications to almighty God. And by the way, supplications means prayers and petitions, their requests. So it being the indispensable duty of all nations, all nations. So this would have been the Wampanoag, right? It would have been the Patuxent. It would have been the English. It would have been the Dutch. It would have been anybody at all. Not only to offer up their supplications to almighty God, the giver of all good for his gracious assistance in times of distress, but also in a solemn and public manner to give him praise for his goodness in general, and especially for great and signal interpositions of his providence on their behalf. Now let's take that out of uh, 18th century language. What it means is, especially for the awesome and noteworthy interventions of God in history on behalf of those nations. Now, where have you heard any talk like this at all in modern times? So this proclamation goes on, therefore, the United States in Congress assembled, taking into their consideration the many instances of divine goodness to these states in the course of the important conflict in which they have been so long engaged. Now, in 1782, they were talking about the Revolutionary War. The present happy and promising state of public affairs and the events of the war in the course of the year now drawing to a close particularly the harmony of the public councils, which is so necessary to the success of the public cause. Again, pause for a minute. It's saying that there was unity among those who were leading the country. This is very different from our riven and divided uh, political situation today. The perfect union and good understanding, which has hitherto subsisted between them and their allies, notwithstanding the artful and unwearied attempts of the common enemy to divide them, the success of the arms of the United States and those of their allies, so meaning our military efforts, and the acknowledgement of their independence by another European power, meaning France recognized them, whose friendship and commerce must be of great and lasting advantage to these states. We do hereby recommend it to the inhabitants of these states in general to observe and request the several states to interpose their authority in appointing and commanding the observation of Thursday, the 28th day of November next as a day of solemn thanksgiving unto God for all his mercies. And they do further recommend to all ranks to testify their gratitude to God for his goodness by a cheerful obedience to his laws and by promoting each in his station and by his influence, the practice of true and undefiled religion, which is the great foundation of public prosperity and national happiness done in Congress at Philadelphia, the 11th day of October in the year of our Lord, 1,782 and of our sovereign and independence, the seventh John Hanson president, Charles Thompson secretary. Can you even imagine something like this being put forth by our Congress in this day? It's a different time. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, anyway, so we've gone on longer than I thought we would, but I wanted to help people understand, you know, the good origins of Thanksgiving. And, you know, let me just suggest maybe that if you're at a Thanksgiving dinner and somebody starts having a go at Thanksgiving or slagging off on the pilgrims, maybe you want to take this podcast and play it for everybody and set the record straight. Because I really think in our time, there's a great effort to dishonor God, to wipe the Christian uh, roots anyway, of American history from the record. And we're trying to turn Thanksgiving into, I'm not sure what, just a day of uh, gluttony without really recognizing that we are to give thanks publicly 
-hmm. verbally and openly to God for his many goodnesses to us. Yeah, I love it. And I, I think it goes right along with what you were talking about in, in Halloween is that uh, the roots can bear fruit, right? And so we can redeem uh, the roots and, uh, and, and begin to, to make this more about thanking God for his provision. And if you're listening to this, probably on a smartphone, you're experiencing his provision, uh, you know, and, and there's no doubt about it. So there's always a reason to give thanks. And uh, I'm thankful, Ken, that you took the time to, uh, to educate us all uh, and remind us about this. So Ken, listen, you got to go have some turkey and, uh, and I do too. So we'll, we'll, we'll take a break here and we'll see you guys right back here next week. Thanks so much for joining us. And we look forward to many, many more episodes that we can all give thanks for. God is Not a Theory is a podcast of Orbis Ministries. For more information about Orbis Ministries, go to orbisministries.org. If you have questions you'd like to have Ken answer on the podcast, please send us an email to podcast at orbisministries.org. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Julia with Orbis Ministries. I just wanted to let you know that if you'd like to learn more from Ken and connect with others in the Orbis community, you can download the Orbis Ministries app on your Apple or Android phone. On the app, you'll find a free teaching archive, a conference schedule, and an internal messaging community. A link to download the app can be found in your description. Thanks so much. God bless.